and that the Lord would have his way through all of it. So let's join together in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would be leading us this morning, whether it's with the children in the back, through these different ministries and events. And most importantly, Lord, that you would assist and aid me in the teaching of your word. Give me the right thoughts, the right uh, remembrances, be able to read and speak properly, Lord, and that you would get the magnification of all of it, Lord. You would receive the glory as you change us and mold us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Matthew chapter 9, if you'll turn there with me, we are in verse 14. And by way of introduction, the last verse that we left on, off on, on verse 13, said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was Jesus answering the Pharisees who are questioning him about why he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. And we're continuing with that same thought process, that same means of discipleship, as we look at several miracles that are taking place today. And the Lord is revealing himself but the focus is very rarely on him. It's usually on ourselves. Let's read verses 14 through 17 as we pick up this morning in chapter 9. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untruck cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. First, let's build the background here, and that is that the disciples of John, John has gone out there on the Baptist. He's baptizing people for the remission of sins. It's a different baptism than a New Testament baptism. And he has been preaching repentance. In Mark 1, chapter, in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And that all the people were coming out into the desert to listen to him speak. And he has a completely different ministry. He's wearing camel's hair. He's eating locusts. He has a very um, intense ministry of repentance. But we know that his primary ministry was not speaking about repentance and baptism and the remission of sins. In fact, he was questioned by the Pharisees in John 1, And it says, who are you? that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist's primary ministry was making the way for Jesus to come. And when Jesus came, he said of him, I am not even wor- uh, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals, to strap his shoes. I- I'm not even worthy to do any of that. He is the greatest. This is he of whom I spoke. And we remember the baptism of Jesus and the Father speaking from heaven and the Holy Spirit appearing like a dove. And yet John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and say, how come your disciples are not fasting? How come they're not acting like us? Really, they're saying, how come you're not religious as we are? How come you guys are just having parties with friends? Remember, he's dining with tax collectors and sinners. 
we just left off where he said he is the physician who's come to heal. And so he's being questioned. And it's not just by the Pharisees. He's been questioned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now he's being questioned by the disciples of John. Now, as I was preparing this message, I'll use this as a verbal, but really I was uh, an illustration, I mean, but really I was typing. But let's say I was writing it. I, I began to write my thoughts on this area and I, I read the text and I pray and I weigh in the Lord and, I, and then I start writing and here I am writing and I crumple it up and I throw it away because I realized that I was ranting, just ranting about this text, this portion. And then I do it again, you know, write it, write it, write, nope, nope, get rid of that, that's just me again. And I, I want to share some things the Lord has put on my heart for this section of scripture about the new wine in new wineskins and how you can't put new wine in old wineskins, about how you can't patch clothes with leather when you have different ages, new leather and old leather, because they tear away and they rip. But I'm going to save it to later so that we can tie it all together. The other thing I don't want to do is I don't want to get caught in the nuances of how these things are done. I definitely don't want to talk about the fermentation process or about how leather working was done at that time, because we're going we're gonna to lose what the Lord is really speaking of here. But John's way of doing ministry is not wrong. But Jesus says that he is the groom. He's the reason for celebration. And one day he's going to disappear. He's going to be gone and have a new work. But ultimately we know that wherever the Lord is, there is a freshness, a newness, a, a new work being done. And I'm going to reiterate this a lot. When we talk about old wineskins and the old wine and the new wineskins and the new wine, it's still the same thing. We're not creating something new. This is not a new faith. It's not a new religion. It's not a new way of doing things. The Old Testament wasn't wrong, and the New Testament fixed it. No, it, it's the same thing, the same truth from Genesis to Revelation. Nothing changes. It's just fresh. It's new. And the Lord talks about this all the time. He's always constantly doing a new work and a fresh thing. He's not looking back the same way that we may. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21, at the end of the book, the end of the Bible, he's talking about another fresh work, about starting all over. In Revelation 21.5, it says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What is he talking about all the way back in Revelation, excuse me, all the way forward in Revelation 21? He's talking about creating a new heaven and a new earth. So all the problems we're dealing with now and all the controversy and all the issues he, he's just going to be done with that later on too, and he's just going to restart all over with something else. What is it? I have no idea. We're going to have to be there and see. And we get stuck, and we take the focus on ourselves and our condition and where we're at and what's going on, and we become like the disciples of John, questioning, why don't we do it the old way? Why don't we do it this way? How come we're doing this? And, and it gets me to wondering, you know, why does the sermon have to be 45 minutes long? If it's 60 minutes, people will start walking out. Man, he went really long today. Well, how long is a message supposed to be? Why do you stand for the first song and stand for the second song? Why do we organize everything this way? 
Why didn't we do it this way or that way? Are hymns better or new hymns or contemporary? Again, I'm going to address all these things a little bit later, but we need to start asking questions. And these questions are going to lead us to a, a, conf- a confronting result later on. Now we're going to transition because we're going to look at three sets of miracles again in this text. And we're going to keep that same line of thinking as we continue th- forward. So let's read verses 18 through 26. This is the first group of miracles. And in verse 18, it says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, and he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. So the first group of miracles is for a daughter and for a lady. We, we group them together. And I want you to notice as we continue throughout the rest of this chapter that every single one of these people are outcasts, they're not well connected, or they're unclean, uh, not righteous. For example, even though the ruler of the synagogue's daughter, you would think is connected and uh, righteous and She's dead. So for him to touch her is to touch an unclean person. So he's doing things that nobody can do. Uh, The woman with the blood flow uh, for 12 years, unclean. You can't touch her. You can't be, she should be at home. But how can you do that for 12 years? And he's able to do things and go places that nobody else can go. Now, we have some more details in the Gospel of Luke. We know the name of the the ruler. We know that it's a 12-year-old girl, and that it's his only daughter. In fact, let's read it together. It's in Luke 8, 41. And behold, there came a man named Jarius, so that's his name, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, and here's another detail, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. I got a lot of questions here. And we should have a lot of questions. I have a daughter who's very similar in age. She's my only daughter. And I can't even imagine what this guy is going through. And she has died. And this leads me to question a lot of things. He's a ruler of the synagogue, Jarius is. And so we're going to infer into the text. We know that's very dangerous, right, as we fill in the lines. So, so we've got to take all this with a grain of salt. But why does he wait till she's dead before she go, he goes to Jesus? Now, Jesus has been healing everybody. I assume, again, dangerous, I assume it's because he cannot say that he believes in Jesus or following Jesus because he's going to have a church split, a synagogue split. There's going to be problems there. He's going to ruin his livelihood. He's going to ruin his reputation. But his daughter's sick. I'm not waiting till my daughter's sick before I go. If I hear there's a man healing people, I'm going. 
You know, I, I'm going to be there quick. I'm going to be praying fast. But this guy, he waits, and she dies, and now he's like, well, what do I got to lose? And he goes to Jesus. And this is incredible in and of itself because, remember, Jesus is completely surrounded by multitudes of crowds that are all trying to get healed, and he's healing them. But somehow this guy gets up to him, and he tells her, excuse me, and he tells Jesus, my daughter is dead, but you can raise her from the dead. Wow, that's not a small ask. And Jesus could have said, no, that's too late. You should have came to me earlier. He says, okay, let's go. That is incredible in and of itself. And I wonder wonder what Jarius is thinking. Like, this is a fool's errand. Is this really going to work? Or is he like have 100% faith and they're making his way to his house? This guy who's got all these crowds around him. Man, I hope this works. And then all of a sudden, this other lady comes up and just barely touches Jesus and Jesus stops. Like, if I'm Jarius, I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not stopping now. We've got to go. But we don't, we don't know if that conversation takes place. And so Jesus turns around, and he knows exactly what's going on with this woman, who for 12 years has spent every penny she's ever earned or had to try and have the doctors to heal her, and nothing works. And Jesus turns around knowing all that and says, your faith has made you well, and she's fixed. Now, we've got some questions to ask here, because the critics, the atheists, the agnostics, and those... Uh, skeptics and doubters, of which I am one, is going to ask some questions. What kind of God allows 12-year-old girls to die? What kind of God would allow a 12-year-old girl to die only to come to the house and raise her from the dead? What kind of God allows a woman to have a blood flow for 12 years and not be healed and then wait till she comes to him and heals her. And then what about all the other people on the planet? Let's come back. Let's come back to this. we got some serious questions here. But when Jesus comes to this house for this lady, for this daughter, they are already having the funeral. The mourners are there. The musicians are there. The orders are there. They're dressed in black. The hearse is outside. Like, this is funeral time. It's over. And Jesus comes in and says, don't worry, she's sleeping. Cancel the party. And they escort. But the, imagine the mocking and the laughing and the ridicule. In fact, it says in Matthew 24, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Well, Jesus goes in there. And what does it say next? He took her by the hand. And she rose. How do we say this in the South? Y'all, she's dead. Dead as a doornail. She's stiff. Stiff as a board. And Jesus says she's sleeping, goes in there, touches her by the hand, and wakes her. But I have the same line of criticism. Why? What's with the ruse? Why do you have to go there? Why do you have to touch her? Why did you allow this to happen in the first place? It's not right. And then I want to flip the coin on the other side and say, what, what do you think the father is thinking at this time now that she's up? She's alive. You think he ever let her go, ever? You want to talk about a helicopter parent. He, I guarantee you she has never left his side. And imagine the poor, the poor girl's fiancé or when she gets married, like, oh, dad's at the house again. Here he is 20 years later. Let me tell you about the story. Nothing but joy. I can guarantee you, though, in that town, I'm sure there's somebody else who died at that same time, and they didn't get healed. What kind of God does that? 
got some real questions, don't we? Well, let's keep going. I'm baiting you all to let you know. I'm baiting you all. We're going to come and we're going to speak directly at this. But now we have another group of miracles in verses 27 through 31. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. So let's do the same thing. Let's put ourselves in these guys' shoes. These two guys are blind. They can't see anything. Black. Everything is blackness wherever they go. They can't work. They can't make a living. All they can do is beg. You know, imagine the tin can shaking it for alms. Someone has to lead them in front of the synagogue or the marketplace for them to beg. That is it. There is no hope. There is no hospital. There is nothing but blackness for the rest of your life. And so these guys are beginning to hear these tales of this man named Jesus going around healing everyone. And they're thinking to themselves, if we could just get there, maybe he will heal us. And so how do they get there? They're not jumping in the car. They have to grope and crawl and have people lead them and try and figure out a way that they can get there. And they get to this house where Jesus is at. And they're just yelling. They're just crying out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. They're begging, just like Jairus is begging earlier, begging him to heal him. And then Jesus speaks to them, do you think, do you, do you think I can do this? Now i got some questions. Doesn't this seem cruel? Why does God make people blind? And then why does God make these guys blind? They get nothing but darkness. They have no hope in the world. And then make them crawl all the way to where Jesus is and beg for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on us. That doesn't seem right. And then Jesus asks that question, do they respond with the same questions that I'm asking? They don't respond with any questions at all. Simply, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And Jesus reveals. He takes the blackness away from them. And they see. God is God. You see, our lives... They don't matter. The Bible says that we are like flowers of the field here today and gone tomorrow, that we are like vapor that disappears. And in this world right now, out of no fault of their own, you have men 18 to 35 years old in the Ukraine, they're dying 200 men a day, every single day, because they grew up there. You have people that are being born and they're dying or they're being aborted by the thousands. They didn't get to choose that. You got young girls who are in Israel living on the border. They didn't get to pick where they were at. And they definitely didn't get to pick the fact that terrorists came across their border and tortured and killed them for political purposes. And on the flip side, to be a Palestinian, they didn't choose to be born there where they can't move, they can't immigrate, they can't go anywhere. That's not fair. Why did God make things this way? Why did God do things this way? This, can't, this is cruel. This is unusual. This is not fair. And then you realize 
that our lives do not have the value that we think they do, that we are not as important as we think we are. The Bible says in Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever had formed the earth, before you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is God. He created all things, and the Bible says he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deep places. Now, I'm priming you. I am dropping hits. We, we are going somewhere with this. Don't you worry. I'm making sure you're awake and you're listening because we have real problems we're dealing with. But their answer, these blind men's answer is not, why do we deserve this? Why did you do this to us? Why did you make us this way? It's simply, yes, Lord. And I guarantee you there were plenty of other blind people around there that were not healed and would die blind. But when Jesus responds back and they are healed, suddenly the darkness is gone and they can see a world of color and light, faces and smiles. They can see the sunrise and the green leaves. Everything is revealed to them. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus could heal the woman. Only Jesus could raise the dead. Only Jesus can reveal the blindness. He is the only one, and he does whatever he pleases. And your life doesn't matter one bit you are not the main character. You are not the judge of all creation. And you're definitely not his judge. I told you, hold on, it's coming. Now, these guys are obedient in faith, but they don't ob obey the Lord. You guys notice that at the end? Jesus told them to keep quiet. And then what do they do? They tell everybody. But then in their defense, how could they, how could they not? I mean, could you imagine... Let's say one of their names is Tim. It's like, hey, Tim, what's going on? Oh, man, you're a lot uglier than I thought. What are you talking about? Well, when I heard your voice, I thought you were more handsome, but you got those nasty teeth and that big zit on your face. Never seen that before. You can see? How, how did that happen? I can't tell you. No, 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 no. You've got to tell me what is going on. And by the way, I'm not that ugly. And so they're just probing and probing, and Tim's finally like, ah, oh, you know, I met that man Jesus, and... We just we were dragging our way over there, and I was so worried, but he said, can you heal us? And I said, yes, and then he did, and here I am. Everything's amazing. They were just obedient in one area, but not in the next. Well, we have a third miracle to go over, and that's in verses 32 through 38, where it says, And they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed, and when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Then Jesus went out about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion with, for them, because they were weary and scattered like a sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers of his harvest. So this, this man, he's mute. He can't speak. He's, uh, 
almost a complete vegetable, it would seem like. He, he has no communication, and he is possessed by a demon, and they have to bring him to him. How they brought him there, I have no idea. And we don't even know what happens. Jesus probably just said, depart, and that guy is gone. The demon is gone. And now he's able to speak, he's able to communicate, and man, what stories he must have. Which makes you wonder, like, why allow that to happen in the first place? Why would a good God do that? We talked about that, because he is the Lord of all creation. And then that brings us back to ourselves. That we live in a sin-cursed and fallen world. The Lord, he didn't make anyone blind. He didn't kill anybody. He didn't make things this way. Sin brought sickness, suffering in the world. And it's our decisions and the things that we do that are causing this. And I said earlier that your life doesn't matter. It doesn't, except for that he says it does. See, the king of kings says that you are made in his image. The creator of the universe says that you matter. And he came to the world so that you may be saved. And we live in this sin-cursed and broken world, believer and non-believer alike, and bad and terrible things happen. But he says that he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son for us. He says that you're important and that he made a way of salvation for you and everything else. You deserve nothing. The issue is we become the star of our own movie. We, we think that we are the ultimate judge of all things, and it is the exact opposite he is the center point. And that's going to bring us back to our earlier rant about the new wine and the new wineskins. I'll use Calvary Chapel as our example. We become the center focus on what we think things should be like. And if you talk within the Calvary Chapel movement, they talk too much about the old days. Here's the problem. Nobody knows what old days they're talking about. Because for some of them, it's like, oh, in the days of the tent, that's the way, it, which the way it's supposed to be. Oh, in the old chapel. Oh, before the vineyard split. Oh, no, in the 1980s when we were planting all these churches all over the world, that's when things were really happening. No, in the 90s when we had the radio station coming, that's when things... And even I get a little nostalgic for the certain times that I was there. What are we talking about? It's old wine skins, old wine. That, that, that was great. It was an amazing work of God. But he wants to do a fresh work and a new work today. And he's going to continue to do a new work all the way until Revelation when he has a new world and a new heavens. He wants to do something new. But we are so focused on ourselves. Why my problem? Why my blood flow? Why my sickness? Why my hurting? Why my family? Why is things not working out? Why is everything going terrible? Oh, it's because it's God. He's doing it all. He's so mean. Who is he? And who are you? Who are you that you get to declare anything to God? Nobody, except he says that you're important. And he wants to do a fresh and new work in you. Now remember, it's still wineskins and it's still wine. The formula doesn't change. We don't want to be people that are going to go and start reinventing the wheel. No, the truth is the truth. It's always been that way. And we should look back fondly, but we are not stuck there. He's doing a new work today in us, something fresh. The Bible tells us in Psalm 71, also, your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Are you more important than that 12-year-old girl? Are you more important than that blind person? Are you more important than that 
soldier in Ukraine or that innocent in Israel or Palestine in the Gaza Strip? Who, are, are you more important than an ab- aborted child? Are you more important than someone that's sick and dies? The answer is no. But you do have a soul, and God says you are important and you're valuable, so valuable that he gave his only begotten son for you. Who are you and who is he? See, the focus is on Jesus wherever he goes, whatever he does, however he does it. We can't be looking at it, well, he needs to go where I tell him to go or else. No, no, you're in a bad spot. If he leaves the Calvary Chapel movement, then great, let's go. Wherever he's going, I'm going too. If he's leading in a different direction, let's go. Because who am I? No one. We cannot be like the disciples of John. Well, you're just not doing it right. You don't have hymns. Oh, 45 minutes, that's too long, that's too short. Oh, you stand, you sit, you have that worship, that worship. That's not the way we used to do it. Who cares how we used to do it? We keep regurgitating the same old traditions over and over again. We need a fresh moving of the Holy Spirit. Same, same work. The formula is not wrong. The formula is great, fantastic. We need a fresh work inside of us. Who are you? See, even though God doesn't inflict us and make us mute and blind and dead and sick, He can heal us, He can change us, He can lead us, and He has definitely made a way of salvation so that you will live for eternity in His presence by faith alone. He is all-powerful. In Exodus 15, 11, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? He is so good and so loving, and he cherishes every single one of us. But at the same time, we are just those sheep that he's talking about here. He is the shepherd, and we need to go wherever the shepherd goes because we act like sheep having no shepherd. And we are just sheep looking at each other, being led astray when our focus is not on him. And in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, it says, Who is God? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. If he wants us to come and beg for forgiveness, then we will come and beg for forgiveness. If his answer is no, it is no. I am so grateful that his answer is yes and that he is a healer and that in his presence all things will be made new and all things will be right. We have a glorious promise in him. Until then, there is no promises to, each, to any of us, but we cling to him. He loves you and cherishes you, even though we deserve nothing. And so that's enough already with all this religious nonsense, with all that habitual repetition and tradition and criticism and thinking that somehow we're the judge of what a revival is and isn't or what is good and what is not. He is the king. We go with him. It's his work. He does whatever he pleases. If he is silent, then we stay silent. If he is moving, then we move. And if he speaks, then we amplify what he says. He's the king. And so we need to lift our eyes off of ourselves and our own situation Stop lifting your eyes from the past. Stop looking back on how things used to be or should be and start focusing on him and where he's going and what he's doing. Lift your eyes to the Lord and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. 
that you are a good God that loves us and cherishes us, that we are important in your eyes, but we are not the king, you are. Terrible things happen every day, Lord, and yet you lead us through them. Sometimes you change them and sometimes you don't. We want to be more like you and less like ourselves. We want to be less self-centered, Lord, and more you-centered. And so we pray that you would move in our hearts and in our lives and that you would give us a right vision with right actions to follow after you and to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.